Let's do a little recap, just to remind you of where we were last week. Um, can anybody remember what we talked about last week? It can be summed up in two words. The powers. That's what we talked about last week. Um, and that they're much more than just an invisible uh, presence that um, stirs up selfish and greedy and lustful thoughts and unsuspecting human beings, but they're spiritual beings in the heavenly realm that influence humanity on a societal, cultural, and ideological level. So a really high up level that uh, is imperceptible to people. And there's an interconnectedness between their activities in the heavenly realm and the manifestation of those activities here on earth through people. And captivity to those powers is a really important part of how we see the human condition. Because if we recognize that, that empowers us to have compassion and to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, because we recognize that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but they're these evil forces in the heavenly realm. That's our recap for last week. This week, we're going to still be in chapter 2, but we're going to move on to movement 2, which is verses 11 through 22. We already talked about how before Jesus, we were cosmically dead. We were dead in our transgression. And now we're going to talk about how before Jesus, we were also covenantally dead. We were isolated from the covenants of God and the family of Israel. So I'm going to go ahead and read through uh, verses 11 through 22 through this chart. Hopefully you can see it a little bit. It's kind of light, but um, it's got a rhetorical design to it. So as I read through it, see if you can see how the different parts correspond to each other. Therefore, remember that at one time, y'all, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcised, what is performed by hands in the flesh, that y'all were at that time without Messiah, estranged from the citizenry of Israel and foreigners of the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Jesus, y'all who are at one time far off have become near by the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace, the one who made the two into one, and having destroyed the barrier of the wall, the enmity in his flesh, having set aside the Torah of commandments and decrees, in order that he might create in himself the two into one new humanity, making peace, and that he might reconcile to God the two by means of one body, through the cross, having killed the enmity in himself, and as he came, he announced good news of peace to y'all who were far off and peace to those near, because through him we both, by means of one spirit, have access to the Father. Therefore then, y'all are no longer foreigners and immigrants, but y'all are fellow citizens of the Holy Ones and household members of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Messiah Jesus himself in whom the entire building is joined together so that it can grow into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom y'all too are being built together into a dwelling building of God in the spirit. <clears throat> Let's go over the rhetorical design to start. So you can see in boxes A and B at the top, this is our past reality. In the fact that we are Gentiles, we are ethnically alienated from Israel. 
in the flesh, you are not descended from the family of Abraham if you're a Gentile. Therefore, when you're outside of Jesus, you have no covenantal relationship to God because you're outside of the family of Israel. And that alienation is portrayed in C with a spatial language. Um, When you're outside of Jesus, you're far off. And when you're in him, you're brought near by his blood. And that is an important note to remember here because it's the introduction of temple language. And that's going to become really important as we move through this movement. Um, In the sacrificial system, people would come uh, to the temple and they would bring their sacrifice and the priests would offer that sacrifice on the altar. And it was through the blood of that sacrifice that people would draw near to God there in the sacrificial system. So that's an important uh, introduction to temple language in this section. Um, If you move into the middle section here, these three Ds, these are also really important. The question to ask as we look at these three is, how does um, Jesus, Israel's Messiah, bring near and bring into the covenant family non-Israelites? How does he do that? It's two important points. First, it says here that he destroys the barrier wall, the enmity in his flesh. That's one way. And the second way he does this is by setting aside the Torah of commandments in decrees. He does those two things. And as a result, we are both Jew and Gentile, the two of us reconciled to God by means of that one body. Jesus kills the enmity between Jew and Gentile in his flesh on the cross. And then as you go on down through these corresponding parts, you'll see the reversal of our alienated identity coming into the family of God. So we're no longer orphans. We don't have that identity anymore. Uh, He gives both Jew and Gentile access to the Father through one shared spirit. And in B, you're no longer alienated, but you're citizens. Not only that, you're actually household members of God. And then as you get down here into A, you see this new creation reality. You were once estranged, but now not only are you household members of God, but you're being built into this temple, which is the dwelling place of God in the spirit. That's a pretty incredible uh, new creation reality. And uh, Jesus himself is the cornerstone of that temple that you're being built into. So the new temple was something that was talked about a lot in the Old Testament all over the place. I thought I'd just give you a couple examples of that. So this is in Zechariah chapter 6. And you are to tell him that this is what the Lord of hosts says. Here is a man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed in splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be peaceful counsel between the two. So this is talking about Jesus, the branch. And from himself, he's going to branch out, and he's going to build this temple. And then he's going to sit on his throne as the ultimate of priests and kings. That's, That's the Jesus that we know. And this is also this temple language, people being built into this temple, is talked about a lot in our New Testament as well. Here's a couple examples of that in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, 
God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. That is pretty plain language. He just says it right there. You are God's temple. This is in 1 Peter 2 as well. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this, the New Testament also depicts Jesus's followers as the new temple. Remember those two points I mentioned earlier. How does Jesus bring uh, non-Israelites into the covenant family of God? The first one is he destroys that barrier wall. He destroys that enmity in himself. And the second is he sets aside um, the Torah of commandments and decrees. So first we'll talk about the barrier wall. This is really interesting because the little bit of cultural um, historical context. So this picture here is a recreated picture of what the temple looked like in Jesus and Paul's day before it was destroyed in 70 AD. I don't know if you can see this here, but it says court of Gentiles. So out here is the space where we get the narrative about Jesus flipping the tables of the money changers. That's the court of the Gentiles. And then you see this here. This is a dividing wall. This is called a balustrade. And it separates the area that the Gentiles can be in from the area that the Jews can be in. So if you're Jewish, you can enter in through here, come into this court. It's called the court of women. So both women and men can be in this court if they're Jewish. Now, if you are a man and you brought your sacrifice that day, you could ascend some steps right here and you could hand off your sacrifice to the priest who would then take it back down these stairs in here and to the altar that's out of view and sacrifice your animal for you there. Basic layout of the temple. Now, this uh, is a stone that's actually real. It was salvaged from the ruins of the temple after it was destroyed, and it has this inscription on it that is really powerful. It says, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. So that's on this balustrade telling the Gentiles, you cannot draw, you cannot come into the presence of God. Like, isn't that such a picture of the division between Jew and Gentile and the alienation and estrangement of the people that were Gentiles? Um, so Jesus tears down this barrier wall on the cross in his flesh. But also, this physical thing is a really powerful and vivid metaphor for something else that he did, which is the second point. He sets aside the Torah of commandments and decrees. That barrier wall is a metaphor, too, for this, something really important that he had to do. So Torah, let's talk about that first. The word Torah just means law, but also the first five books of our Bible we often refer to as the Torah. It's because those five books contain the stories, the narratives of how God handed down his covenant laws to Israel, how he told them um, how to worship him, 
how to draw near to him, how to live their lives, how to conduct themselves, um, all of those things. He gave to them those commands that they were supposed to be faithful to, to uphold the covenant, to participate in the covenant, and they constantly failed at that. So when Paul talks about the Torah of commandments and decrees here, he specifically means those commanded laws of the covenant. And you'll find that he has a really nuanced view of the Torah. And it's complex, but it's also comprehensive. And you can work your way through it and see how he thinks about the Torah. Um, So basically, what's most important to grasp about this is that God's commands given to Israel are good. They're righteous. They're God's will. They're a blessing. They show us how to live. And somehow, at the same time, they become this agent of hostility and enmity that has to be set aside. It's an interesting paradox um, around the Torah that is really complex and cool to look into. So when Paul says the Torah of commandments and decrees right here, you can be sure that he has a developed theology behind these words, but he doesn't expound on it here in Ephesians for us. We have to go to other places to look for that. So a place where he does that is Galatians 3, and he also does that in Romans chapter 7. So we'll go there and look at what he says there to find out about his nuanced view on the Torah. We're going to start in verse 4 here. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So everyone in Messiah, both Jew and Gentile, have died to the law through the body of Christ. They're no longer bound by the law. And moving on to verse 5 and 6. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were brought to light by the law, were at work in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So do you remember last week when we talked about the passions of the flesh and the people who were dead, but they looked alive and they lived their lives according to the ruler of the authority of the air. And they had those fleshly mindsets. That's what's being talked about here. Those fleshly passions and mindsets that are sinful, those get exposed here by the law. And again, you can see this dying to one thing and you're alive to another thing. What he's definitely not saying here is that before Jesus, there was the old way of doing things, which was all based on legalism and performance and uh, doing the law good enough so that you could be righteous and draw near to God. That's not what the first five books of the Bible tell us. They tell us that we can't do that, that humanity constantly fails to do that. They tell us that we need a new covenant, Like We need human beings recreated in the spirit of God so that they can fellowship with him. Um, That's what they tell us. And also, this isn't saying that after Jesus, when you're in Messiah, that it's just a permissive free-for-all, that there's no longer any boundaries or anything, and that you just get to do what you want because you're not bound by the law. That's not the case either. 
Remember, when you accept the free gift from God, there's that expectation of reciprocity. You are going to give your believing loyalty to him, and that means all of it belongs to him. And now his spirit dwells inside of you, and you submit to that spirit, and he teaches you how to live in the spirit and bear fruit for life. So just want to lay that out. It's not uh, now there's no rules kind of thing, and before you just have to be good enough. That's not what it's about. So moving on into verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. So again, here we see he's saying, is the law sin? No, it's not. It's good. It's righteous. It comes from God. Um, And it highlights uh, sin. It helps identify sin and uh, those things that have no part in God's new creation. It exposes those things. Paul uses this example here, you shall not covet. And it's no coincidence that he uses this example. Because to covet something means you want something that does not rightfully belong to you. You want it for yourself. And this is the fundamental sin that Eve committed in the garden. She saw the uh, fruit on the forbidden tree. She saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasurable to her eyes, and that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. And she went and took it. She coveted that thing, and it led her into taking it. God gave this one prohibitive command in the garden. He said, don't eat from this tree. You can eat from all the other trees, and you can even dwell in my presence and walk with me in the cool of the day. What could be better than that? Well, I guess choosing my own wisdom. <laughs> would, uh, I would think that, you know, she thinks that's uh, the better choice. So when he tells her that, what does the snake seize on? What does he seize on? He seizes on the very command. He says, did God really say that you couldn't eat from the trees in the garden? He seizes on the very command to, in, to uh, inflame the desire to break that very command. So through the command, sin stirs the desire to break, which is exactly what this says here in verse 8. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. That's exactly what happened in the garden. He entered in through that command to bring about the temptation and inflame that rebellion to break the very command. And this continues on in verse 9. So the divine command, paradoxically, it spotlights what is wrong, what doesn't belong in God's good creation. But under the conditions of humanity and slavery to the powers, sin inflames the desire to do the very thing that's wrong. So the problem isn't God's commands. That's not the problem. It's that the powers have hijacked those commands to produce death in us. Like I said, this continues in verse 9. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. So if God had not told me what to do and what not to do, well, then there just wouldn't be a problem. But when he does give me his good instruction, I've got this thing like where I just want to pick for myself. Like I just don't want to listen. I want to choose good and evil, for myself. I want to latch on to my own wisdom. 
I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life, the command intended to bring life, actually brought death. And it brings death because I can't live up to it. Because a human being can't live up to it. Humanity that is captive to the powers and to their own rebellion can't live up to that command. So it actually brings death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. Do you see how he says deceived me right here? The primary referent of that is, again, the story in the garden. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Notice here how he says, sin deceived me. He doesn't say, the snake deceived me. He says, sin deceived me. Do you see how it's being portrayed here as almost like an entity? It's almost like it's personified, so much more than just the rebellious things that you do or the mistakes that you make. It's being elevated to that level of the powers that influence all of humanity to uh, keep them from the creator. It's a much higher level um, portrayal of it. And like I said, notice that he doesn't say the snake deceived me. He says that sin deceived me. And this gives us so much insight into how Paul views the snake, how he views the sin, how he views the powers, and uh, how they influence humanity. In the class that I took, they refer to all these spiritual beings that are in rebellion to God as the Apocalyptic Power Alliance. I think that is a great name for all of this network of things that has influence over humanity. So sin deceived me through the command and killed me. Verse 12. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it, w it used what is good, the command, to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You can see how this is all playing out, how the command exposed sin for being utterly sinful. This was a great metaphor that I felt like really brought home this idea. And I'm just going to read it to you straight from the class notes as a quote. It says, The real problems that prevent creation from becoming what God meant it to be are so deceptive and so lurking under the surface, it's as if the divine command is God beating the bushes so that the snake has to crawl out from under the bush and be exposed for what it really is. Isn't that awesome that God gives his commands and it perfectly highlights the condition of people in their fallen state? So you're told by God the thing that leads to life. You're given the very wisdom of God. And that very thing just exposes how utterly hopeless you are to ever live up to that thing. And it's no wonder that Paul ends this section in Romans by saying, what a wretched man am I? Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> it's no wonder that he feels that way. And it seems like such a harsh judgment for God to look at humanity and say, you can't hold these laws of the covenant up. You can't do this. But in actuality, it's a it's a mercy, because without it, we would not understand our predicament, 
outside of Jesus. It's, it's, it's a mercy that the law exposes sin. So through the law, sin is exposed for what it really is, so that we can come to Romans 8 verse 1, so that therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You no longer stand under condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, this law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what's the uh, result of the law being given to human beings that are um, in the condition of being under captivity to the powers? It results in death. We need something totally new. What if you had human beings that were reborn, filled with God's spirit, and whose failures have been covered for by a representative that was human on their behalf, Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the divine commands, well, then you'd have a real victory. You'd have a new humanity filled with God's spirit that can partner with him, that can have fellowship with him. Through the victory of Jesus, you have new creation humanity that can live by the law of the spirit of life. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So if you're in Jesus, it's no longer you who stands condemned by sin. It's sin that stands condemned in the body of Jesus on the cross. Isn't that an amazing freedom that he won for us? So you can see there's this complexity of the Torah, and there were these secondary consequences that weren't a part of God's will that happened. Uh, people ended up trapped by the law because their inability to fulfill it, because of their own rebelliousness, and because they were in captivity to the powers. So these secondary consequences happen. So coming back to Ephesians here, in this center section where Paul is talking about how in Jesus' body on the cross, he set aside the Torah of commandments and decrees. Um, what's being discussed here isn't the law of the spirit of life. He's talking about what the Torah became as a result of the broken, fleshly, and fallen condition of Israel. He's talking about those secondary consequences that we just uh, looked into. Not only was humanity trapped, it also produced an Israel that was at odds with the nations. Rather than being the vehicle to restore God's blessing to the nations, hostility was generated between Jew and Gentile. So to get more into that, there's a great quote. Um, it's kind of long, but we'll work through it step by step because it perfectly sums up this hostility between Jew and Gentile and what Jesus did about that. So barrier. Remember, we've talked about the barrier. Barrier is the word used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint being the Jewish translation of the Hebrew scriptures into ancient Greek for Greek-speaking Israelites. So barrier is the word used in the Septuagint for the protective hedge which God planted around Israel, his vineyard. In Isaiah's parable, 
It is God who breaks down the hedge around Israel and leaves it exposed to devastation because of Israel's faithlessness. In the period of the second temple and later in the time of the rabbis, Jews sometimes spoke of the Torah as a protective hedge which protected Israel from sin. In the letter of Aristius, so this is a letter that was written by a Jewish person in the second temple period about 150 years before Jesus. It's really valid here because it's written by a Jewish person and shows us the perspective of a Jewish person on the Torah during that time. So in that letter to Aristius, we read that Moses, by the gift of the Torah, and this is in quotes from the letter, hedged us about with impregnable ramparts and iron walls to prevent all contact with any of the other nations and to keep us pure in body and soul, free from futile speculations, worshiping the one almighty God above the creation. So there's a lot of good things that he's perceiving the Torah to do here. It keeps us focused on the one true God. It keeps us pure in body and soul, free from these futile speculations. But also it prevents all contact with any of the other nations. I don't think that that was God's purpose. Remember when he told Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you. They were that vehicle. So you can begin to see this picture in this little bit of Jewish writing, you can see that parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector that come to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee comes and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, swindlers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all that I acquire. You can see that enmity and that hostility between the two of them when the tax collector comes and he says, be merciful to me, God, I'm a sinner. And he can't even lift his eyes. And this Pharisee is all focused on his own righteousness, how well he obeys the law, that he can stand before God, and that makes him better than everyone else. The quote continues to really expound on this idea. So Paul's point is that the Torah intended by God to be a protective hedge, has been turned by Israelite nationalism into a cultural system that has totally isolated Israel from the Gentile world and is thus responsible for the hostility between Jew and Gentile. So what he means by Israelite nationalism is that they've exalted their ethnic identity of being Israel into a power. It's like a cultural power that influences their hostility and enmity between Jew and Gentile. Um, instead of being defined by God's promise to Abraham, part of which was, I'm going to use you to bless all nations, instead of being defined by that promise, their ethnic identity becomes what defines them. And they take pride in all of their laws, the things that make them different from the other nations, and the fact that at least on the outside, behaviorally, it looks like I can obey the laws better than you. Can you see how that would generate hostility and enmity between Jew and Gentile? That was a major problem. So he goes on to say, only by the annulment of the legal code could the barrier be removed. And Paul says this was done in his flesh, in the flesh of Jesus. So Paul's claiming three things here, and we'll work our way through these. Number one, that Jesus deliberately drew off onto himself 
the hostility between Torah-observant Jews and those Gentiles whose company they avoided. So when Jesus was persecuted and crucified, we talked about this last week a bit, it was a union between the Roman state and the Jewish religious authority. And that is no coincidence. It was a union of Jew and Gentile that poured out their hostility on Jesus. So when the Jews handed him over to be crucified, when they had him before the Sanhedrin and they spit on him and slapped him and said to him, mocked him by saying, prophesy to us, Messiah, which one of us hit you? When they did that, they were pouring their hostility onto him and he bore that hostility. And when the Romans arrested him and beat him until he no longer resembled a human and ripped his flesh from his bones and then crucified him, insulted him, mocked him, he bore their hostility as they poured it out onto him. He just bears all of this hostility of both Jew and Gentile. The second point is that this hostility brought him to the cross. This was something really important and big that had to be dealt with at the cross. If there was ever going to be one new humanity in the Messiah made of both Jew and Gentile, this situation had to be put to death in his flesh. Um, it had to be dealt with for them to be the one new humanity. And three, that because he refused to return the hostility, it died there with him. This is just amazing to me. They poured out all of their hostility on him. He bore all their hostility and he refused to return it. He didn't seek vengeance against his enemies when they were hostile to them. And because of that, it stopped with him. It died right there in his flesh because he bore it. Because he bore it. It died there. It's just like Isaiah says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's the ultimate, the buck stops here. He bore all that hostility and he didn't return it, and it died in his flesh. And now you get one new humanity in Messiah for those that will put their faith in him. That is just incredible what he does for us. That same book stops with us, too, when we choose to love our enemies, to not return hostility, to pray for those who persecute us. We get to follow in his pattern of that book stops with me when I don't operate in that spirit of hostility, but I operate in the spirit of love because I'm filled with God's spirit. So the quote finishes up by saying, this is a picture substantially borne out by the gospel narratives. And for Paul, the verification of it was plainly to be seen in any Pauline church where Jew and Gentile mixed freely on equal terms. So in spite of generation upon generation of hostility, the new creation takes hold because of what Jesus did, because he bore the hostility. And this is why in the New Testament over and over and over again, Paul is like, do not go back into bondage to the law. Don't do that. It's why he's constantly hammering home this point about this division between Jew and Gentile and how that has no part in the new creation, in the church community. There's none of that. He hammers it home over and over. If you want to do some of the old stuff, like you want to celebrate the feasts, you want to do some of that, great. 
go for it. Go and do that. But do not go back into bondage to the law because you can't uphold it and you've already been told that. And don't you dare bring others under condemnation um, that they have to do that too because that is not what brings you into the family of God. It is that believing loyalty in Jesus. That's the requirement that gets you into Messiah and into the family of God. So that's the Torah that was set aside um, and commandments and decrees. So before I close today, I wanted to touch on one really important point. Um, This is a design chart that is, I think we went over this a little bit in our first session. This is the design chart of the entire um, letter to the Ephesians. So you see it's broken down here into chapters one through three and chapters four through six. And if you remember in the macro design of chapters one through three, the pinnacle, the climactic point of chapters one through three is found here in chapter two, verses 19 through 22, the messianic victory monument, the new temple. So before I move on out of chapter two, I thought we should at least touch on this. It's an important point of this whole part of the letter. So remember, earlier in the verses where it says that um, we were far, but we've been brought near by the blood, we have the introduction to the temple language in that section. And as you get down into here and talking about the new creation reality, there's tons of metaphors. So you, you were far off, you were estranged, but now you're citizens and you're household members of God. But you get down here into A, and you get into some really interesting metaphors, stuff that you just don't see. So not only are you members of God's household family, but you're like a living stone. Like Peter says, that you're being built into this building with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And this building grows. Like it's, it's a very strange building. It's, it has a life of its own, and it grows. There's a couple different kinds of imagery here taking place. So you've got the temple metaphors. You're being built into the temple for the presence of God. Not only that, this building grows. So you've got tree imagery as well. So what was in, what was the temple filled with? The physical temple. It was filled with God's presence. It was filled with his glory. So if you're the temple, that is what you are filled with. Uh, the presence and the glory was what filled the temple, and it's what fills us. And that temple was God's dedicated space, like the union of heaven and earth. That was his dedicated dwelling. He did lots of things all over the earth. He could show up anywhere, but that was the place where people would come to meet and commune with him. And I think that says so much for our identity that the presence of God lives inside of us and that we're the new temple. We talked before about Jesus as the reinstated, as the recreated. He's the tree of life. When you eat fruit of him, you'll live and not die. You'll have eternal life, just like the tree of life. And he's the vine and we abide in the vine. So we also bear fruit for life. So people can come and they can experience the fruit that we bear, that fruit of the spirit, And it leads them to want the fruit that Jesus offers for eternal life. So Jesus was the forerunner and the vanguard of this new temple here on earth. 
God's presence came to earth in and through him. And from there, it spreads out into people. And there's lots of metaphors for this in the New Testament. You can talk about believers as branches or as vines that abide in the vine or as a body. But the point is that you all become the temple filled by God's spirit. You are the very filled up thing. Do you feel do you feel like you're the temple of God's presence? That's a trick question because it's not about how you feel. It's just the truth. And you are who he says you are. That is your identity. That's what he says about you and it's what you are. So it doesn't matter how you feel about it. That's just the truth. And the whole point of this is heaven invades earth. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's doing through you. Heaven invades earth. You are that temple, that dwelling place for God. Together, we all grow up into this amazing building. And the fact that there's so many cool and amazing theological truths in chapters one through three, the fact that this messianic victory temple is the climax of all of that in chapters one through three says so much about the identity of the church and what God does on the earth through his church. It is truly remarkable and awesome that we get to partner with him in that, in being that heaven that invades earth. So that closes out chapter two for us. Let's pray. Lord, um, we cannot thank you enough that you have given us so much purpose and meaning that we get to be your people and we get to participate in your plans and purposes, Lord, that we get to bring other people into the kingdom through your spirit, through your power and grace that you've given to us, Lord. We thank you so much for the good works that you created beforehand for us to participate in, Lord. Help us to walk in those, renew our minds, help us to throw off anything that entangles us and keeps us from living in the new creation reality, Lord. Help us to see ourselves here on this earth as exiles, waiting for a better country. We want to live our lives like the time is limited, Lord. And in that time, we want to glorify you. So help us to do that. Help us to glorify you. We love you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.